Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news! With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. In researching the Jennifer Lewis case, I had stumbled upon a podcast dedicated to the case itself. And I was actually shocked by the amount of information that they were providing. And as I said in the episode, if you get the opportunity to listen to the WVIK Suspect Convictions podcast, I highly recommend it. Anyways, when I stumbled upon the podcast, I just had to interview the people behind it. So after some digging and a few phone calls and emails, I was able to sit down with Scott Reeder. As a former Quad City Times reporter, he followed the Stanley Liggins case all the way from the beginning to the finish, quite literally. From the cases of missing and murdered in the Midwest... We're digging deeper with guests who see these crimes from the inside out. This is Crime Chat. And here's your host, Toria Wilson. So, 30 years ago, you were called to just a fire at a Davenport Elementary School, right? By your editor, correct? That's correct. I was the night cop reporter at the Quad City Times. I was 24 years old. Uh, I had a year and a half of experience at another newspaper, and I got dispatched to a small fire at a school playground. It was back in the days when we had the, the Times had its own vehicles, and we'd drive around from police station to police station and look at reports and, and interview detectives and do that sort of thing. And I always would carry a, a police scanner with me and a this is before um, cell phones, a, a big walkie-talkie. The editors could get a hold of me. And I hear on the, the scanner, fire at school playground. And I'm thinking, oh, that's just that neighborhood. They have a lot of trash fires. It's no big deal. And then this editor, who always annoyed the hell out of me, he says, Scott, go check that out. And I'm like, okay, fine, whatever. And I get there at the same time as the um, first police officer. And uh, we see the smoke rising from some tall weeds on the edge of the playground. And, I'm walking over there with him, and I, I get about a foot from the fire, and I look down, and instead of being a trash fire, it was a little nine-year-old girl that had been doused with gasoline and set on fire. It was the most horrid thing I've ever seen in my life, and hope I ever do see. Wow. And you were, you were still a fairly new reporter, correct? Yeah, I'd only been a reporter for about a year and a half, two years when that happened. Wow. And so... You arrive, police officer arrives. Do you just kind of like take a step back at that point and you're just kind of, in a sense, shell shocked? Like you can't believe what you've just seen? I'm just absolutely shocked. Um, I start feeling the um, bile rising up in my stomach. I'm kind of getting weak at the knees. I kind of stagger back. I'm just like, what on earth have I just seen? Because she was laying there, uh, spread eagle. She'd been put in a garbage bag. The, the plastic had melted on her. Um, she, you know, I mean, I, at that time, I couldn't even tell for sure the gender of the child. It was because she was so badly burned, and whoever had done this horrible crime had deliberately poured the gasoline in her in the genital area to destroy any um, DNA evidence or anything else. 
So it was, it was just horrendous. I mean, um, and um, no sooner that the, the police officer called back for backup, um, one of the detectives there right away. Uh, you can appreciate this being a journalist. Um, I knew what I needed to do right then is just plant myself there and not move because I knew as soon as the, the uh, detectives got there, they were going to put up the, the uh, crime scene tape and I was going to be a long way away from it. Mm -hmm. And so I started radioing back the details to the newsroom and um, uh, detectives, well, I knew all of them, um, started showing up. There was Dave Holden, who was a good friend of mine. There was Don Schaefer, who was a lieutenant with the Detective Bureau. There was Ted Carroll, who was a captain with the Detective Bureau. There was Kevin Murphy, who was at the time a corporal with the Detective Bureau. And then there was some, um, you know, um, other people with the ID division, like um, Denny Kern and others. And it would just be, it just got bigger and bigger. And then, then the TV um, station started to arrive. And, um, they set up right next to me. There are tripods, and I've never seen this happen before or since anywhere. They, uh, this was, they we found the body about nine o'clock, and they started zooming in on the body and um, doing live shots for the ten o'clock news. And I mean, I can tell you with all honesty, this is the most horrible thing I've seen in my life anywhere. And suddenly they're taking this incredibly horrible thing and they're projecting it out into everybody's living room at 10 o'clock at night. It was not every, I don't think every station did it, but s several did. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty, uh, it was pretty horrendous. Um, and I just kind of worked the scene like, you know, reporters are supposed to do. I, um, the medical examiner was there, um, I had a really good rapport with him because when I first moved to town from Texas, I um, uh, didn't have a doctor, and you know, he was old doctor Paul Beckman was his name, and um, he became my my physician. And um, uh, whenever I had the flu or something, I'd go to, to Doctor Beckman, and uh, he liked me. So he would, he started spilling the beans on whatever he, what he saw to me. Uh, he said it was it was a young woman. I mean, he guessed at the time I think that she was twelve. She was actually 10. Uh, we started, um, you know, he was conveying to me what, what what had happened and what he could detect from the body. And then, uh, you know, we talked to the detectives about what's going on. And it, I just remember the body language of um, some of the, the cops there. Old Dave Holden, who was, a, as I said, a good friend of mine. He, I've never seen him that visibly angry at the world. He was just, you know, people react to trauma in different ways, but he was just absolutely enraged that such a thing could happen in his community on his shift. And he just, you know, I, I remember him going up to uh, the Channel 6 reporter. No, I take that back. It wasn't Channel 6. I think it was Channel 8. Now I think about it and saying, do you have a uh, car phone in your van? And they said, yes. And he said, I need, to, I need to use it, because this is the days before cell phones were mm -hmm. common. So you had these car phones that were the size of um, 
a shoebox that, that a few news organizations were able to carry. And um, he needed to call and back to the um, station and get more assistance and get more uh, technical expertise. And um, I, uh, it was just uh, horrible. And you know, it wasn't just seeing this, it was smelling this. Um, um, you know, it was just, you know, you were really had a sense like you were on a battlefield because you just, what you saw was just so horrendous. And then uh, a print reporter for the competing newspaper showed up and he was very excited and he, heard, he saw these reporters standing there and he came running over and he almost fell over the body. And I'm like, oh God. <laughs> he didn't see the body there. I don't know how you missed that. Yeah. And, um, um, you know, we're all standing there. I remember there was um, Lisa Toronto. She was the um, Channel 4 reporter. She was a little bit younger than me even. And she's kind of on to... to um, to be a big-time news anchor in Phoenix, and I was talking to her. Um, I was, uh, gosh, about a year ago, and she was, she said, you know, Scott, she was just driving through Phoenix with her two sons, and they were on the um, uh, news. You know, there's some things you can never get out of your mind, no matter what. And her son says, "Have you ever had any cases like that, Mom?" And she said, "There was this little girl in Rock Island uh, who um, who died." I can never get that out of my mind. I was yeah. there when I was 22, and I can't. And she, you know, we didn't know each other particularly well here in the Quad Cities, but the fact that it impacted us the same way and so profoundly, you know, for two people now in their 50s, is kind of amazing. Yeah. Um, um, you know, there was uh, Ed Lewis. Uh, I don't think I don't. You grew up in the Quad Cities. You might remember him. He was. It sounds familiar. He had a big booming voice that he was with Channel Six at the time, and he. Oh yeah. yeah and um, yep, that that rings true now. Yes, <laughs> and uh, he, he's now passed on. But what I remember was when I was doing the interview with um, Dr. Beckman, he kind of snuck up behind me and listened over the shoulder with his with his microphone up, and um, then he excitedly got in onto the um, live shot and said. And this is what I've learned. And then all, before um, before he, he finished his live shot, um, my editor calls me on the, on the walkie-talkie, Ed Lewis has this! Did you know this? And I just hand the, the uh, um, walkie-talkie over to Ed, and he says in his big, booming voice back to the Quad City Times, Yes, yeah, Scott had it first. I was just listening in on his interview. <laughs> <laughs> Journalism. Yes. And, you know, but, you know, so I just kept radioing in details and they were writing the story back in the paper. And then it's it sounds so strange now in the, uh, the Internet era, but suddenly when, you know, the newscasts all happened and then they, they stopped and the TV reporters were just standing there. And then, we t time for the paper to go to press, we put it to bed. Then I'm just standing there. And it's like, well, what can we do now? Well, you know, there's no, no, new no newscast left. There's no, um, no print edition. It's not like we can, uh, it's not like today where you would just post it on the internet, continual mm -hmm. updates. It's like, well, I guess we can go home, you know. Well, yeah, but do we want to leave yet? You yeah. know, she's still laying there. And then, then you hear on these squawks on the, police radio 
that there's a child missing in Rock Island. This is, of course, the Jefferson School in Davenport. And the rumor starts going around that this missing child in, in Rock Island may be the child. And uh, they take the, the child, the, ba- the baby, excuse me, the baby, the, the girl to, um, I think it was Mercy Hospital at the time, which is now, um, I believe it's Genesis, isn't it? Yeah. And um, they have a medical examiner get there and they fingerprint her and they take a police officer over to the school in Rock Island that she attends and um, they go to her desk and pull out her textbook and compare the fingerprints. And they, then they figure out that they said child is indeed Jennifer Lewis wow. and um, it was it was incredible and then of course you know we started learning more about her yeah uh, she'd grown up in really really tragic circumstances uh, her dad had been in jail uh, or excuse me her stepfather had been in jail uh, for selling lookalike drugs uh, and uh, while her, while her Dad was in jail. Uh, her mom was selling cocaine um, for a um, man by the name of Stanley Liggins, yeah. and she, he was marketing it uh, to, to Rock Island, and she was selling it. And so he was coming and going from the house all the time. And he's a very bad man. He's done some really horrible things. Um, and uh, but he'd make over every time he came in tossle her hair or he'd play a little game with counting change or he'd do these different things and it's just this presence that's there when the father gets released from jail he's there and there's always meeting and they're always making over this little girl and it was just very uh, very creepy I mean the family didn't have much they didn't uh, at times they didn't have electricity uh, in the house they, uh, they had problems with rats in this house they uh, the dining, you went in the dining room, there was no there was no table, there was a foosball table. Um, there was just, you, you know, she had to every day bring her um, bicycle into the house because somebody would steal it in the neighborhood if she didn't. And, you know, she had a rough life. And, um, you, you know, I know her mother said, oh, she had a great life. Well, I'm sure there were happy moments in that life. But there was a lot of challenges in that life as well. Yeah. Is that why you decided to cover that part in your guys' podcast, the WVIK Suspect Convictions, mm-hmm. to kind of highlight what Jennifer Lewis had gone through leading up, you know, leading up to? Well, you know, here's the thing. I mean, um, you know, I've been a journalist for a little over 30 years now, and one of the things that really upsets me and... I've noticed over and over again, we, if it's a child of a wealthy person, like Elizabeth Smart or John Benet Ramsey or whoever that goes up missing or is killed, the media's all over it. But if it's a child of a, a coming out of poverty, it's a flash in the pan. Yeah. And I believe all lives count. And I believe that her life mattered. Yes, she was a child who grew up in, in very difficult circumstances. Yes, uh, she was a child that 
was learning disabled, yes, there was things that about her that might make some people say that her life wasn't as valuable as others. I don't believe that. I believe that her life mattered. And um, you know, you flash forward 30 years. Um, I had you know worked for newspapers for 20 years. I ran a national news service for three years, and then I ran a uh, statewide news service for four. And company I'm working for is going through a restructuring and you know I wasn't keen on where I was going to get moved to and I'm talking to my wife and, we're, and she says well what do you always wanted to do and I said I've always wanted to write a book about this murder case I covered as a young reporter she said you know well, then do it you know life's too short to you know be doing something you don't like so quit my job and uh, started uh, working on the book and I had never listened to a podcast before. Well, there was a, my church puts out a podcast of the pastor's sermons, and in case you liked it so much the first time, you could listen to it the second time. I didn't do that very often, but yeah. uh, the uh, uh, but I really never had listened to podcasts. And we were my wife's a veterinarian, and we were driving up to the Quad Cities from Springfield, Illinois, to um, pick up a puppy in Kelowna. And um, I said, you know, I keep hearing about this thing called, um, drawing a blank here, um, the big NPR podcast, um, Adnan Saeed. Um, oh, Serial. Serial. I keep hearing about the Serial thing and these, these podcast things. It's, you know, Serial at the time was the most listened to podcast in history. I think it still may be. Probably. And uh, I said, you know, I never listened to one before, but... Yeah, maybe we should listen to this on the way up. So we're listening to it, and it's a fascinating tale. And after about two or three hours on the road listening to it, I finally turned to my wife and I said, you know, this is an interesting case, but my murder is so much more interesting than this one. <laughs> and um, so make a long story short, you know, since I lived in the Quad Cities, you know, almost 20 years before, I still knew some people, and I called up WBIK, and I... Uh, made the pitch for, well, why don't we go into partnership and produce a podcast on this? Yeah. Before the week was out, um, Jay Pierce had signed off on the idea and assigned a producer to work with me for seven or eight months. Wow. And we produced it, and the podcast became number two in the world on iTunes. That's incredible. Uh, and uh, we, uh, it was a very compelling story, and I continued to cover the case. Um, Went to trial twice, once with a hung jury, and mm-hmm. then again, uh, uh, and I sat through the trial and um, produced daily um, reports out, out of there. Uh, it was uh, you know, so, it's something that's been with me for a long time. I, if you look at um, um, my basement, it's full of these banker boxes full of all the files I've accumulated in this case. So as I write the book, I can draw upon them. I've mm-hmm. traveled. Um, all over the U.S., if honey, the stepfather's missing. He was the alternate suspect in the case. Hunted, um, uh, went down into New Orleans where he was living last and being homeless, and hunted for him underneath the viaducts and um, interstate exchanges and everything else with a flashlight in the middle of the night and a mugshot. Have you seen this guy lately? And um, he's homeless. Yeah, that's Ace. 
Yeah, he hangs out, and they all knew him. Yeah. And, and uh, so I spent like three days down there interviewing people, and they all remembered him, and they we never found him. And um, um, he's never been found uh, by anybody since. And then we, um, you know, we I went to the, the, the uh, town, in small town in Mississippi where Stanley Wiggins grew up, and uh, interviewed people who knew him, Found out about his his past. Uh, talked to his family members. Some of them live here in the Quad Cities. Some of them live in East St. Louis. Some of them live um, down in Mississippi and other places. I've uh, talked to a lot of the family, um, and even they are divided on whether he's innocent or guilty. Really? You know, I mean, uh, you know, uh, his one uh, brother said, "I said to him." Do you think that your brother, that Stanley, did, did this? And he just looked at me and said, I just don't know. And I'm thinking to myself, if somebody came up to me and said, Scott, is your was your brother Dan uh, capable of, you know, uh, sexually assaulting a, a 10-year-old girl, strangling her, tossing her body into the um, uh, school playground and dousing her with gasoline and setting her on fire? I would just say, Hell no, that's not what my brother would do. Yeah. And when you get, well, I don't really know if he did it or would have done it. I'm like, there's something wrong here. Yeah. I mean, you know. That's insane. Why, so this was a question I was thinking of, because you followed this case so, so, you know, exclusively for so long. Mm -hmm. I mean, from the very beginning, almost to the, you know, pretty much the very Mm -hmm. end. Mm -hmm. Why stick with it? You know, I know you... Obviously, that that very first day, that very first night was so, you know, shocking, and it was horrific. It was, it was traumatizing. I mean, I I went home. Uh, you know, when you're a reporter, especially when I was a, I was a, a police reporter for a couple of years here, you see a lot of horrible things. Yeah. But that was the only thing I could remember that went, that stuck with me so bad I couldn't sleep. Uh, it went on for days. I mean, I was just really traumatized about it I mean I it was a, there was the next morning when I got up it was strange because it's the only story I've ever done in 30 some years in the business where I felt a community trauma because you got to remember this got broadcast into everybody's home mm-hmm. and suddenly like you know walking through the apartment complex and parents are like not letting their kids leave the house. They were just terrified because there's literally a child killer on the loose in the community. And um, I'd never seen a crime affect a community that profoundly before or since. Um, it's just, it was a horrendous thing. But not only that, I mean, to witness these things and... Um, to see the community trauma and the pressure that was put on the police officers and the, and the county attorney's office and everybody else to solve this case, to get somebody off the streets, was just just enormous. And, and of course, you know that raises questions. You know, did they cut corners? Did they uh, did they get the right guy? Yeah. I mean, it was a very much a circumstantial case, which most murder cases are, by the way. But, yeah. Um, it was um, it was difficult. And, and to stay with it, though, is was it just that shocking and compelling that it was? It's 
I can't let this go. I want to see this to the very end. I want to see this to the very end was certainly true. I also was curious about the veracity of some of the witnesses. Um, there was one guy who was a cellmate of um, Liggins, and he said that in the first trial, he said Liggins was tried four times. He's um, in the first two trials, he testified that um, Stanley Liggins confessed to him in the um, in his cell. And I thought, you know, I've always thought, why would this hardened criminal Stanley Liggins confess to? his cellmate who he didn't get along with that he killed this girl I mean it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me and this this guy um, Frank Rising who was a cellmate is a career criminal he's been in um, been in and, out of, in and out of prisons in Iowa and Nebraska for his entire life and um, so I said you know I'm going to do some shoe leather reporting you know Frank's been released, just gotten released from the Nebraska prison, and I knew he had some relatives uh, in the Quad Cities, I knew he had some relatives in Sioux City. Um, I decided to drive out to Sioux City and just start knocking on doors with people who had the same last name. And I drive out there, and this is something you don't see happen very much anymore because newsrooms don't have the budgets they used to to do this kind of reporting, but I, you know, I'm on my own, I can do this. So. Yeah. I go this, up to this house uh, out in kind of the middle of nowhere near Sioux City, and there's there's a there's elk running around. I didn't know there were elk in Iowa, you know. And uh, I said that to my wife. She said, "Well, you know they're in, the, they're in South Dakota." And I go, "Yeah." Well, you know, South Dakota borders Iowa. And I go, "Well, yeah." They the elk don't know not to cross the line. I go, yeah, okay, dear, okay. And so we we I walk up this door and I say. And this, this nice family answers the door, and I said, hey, um, I'm looking for Frank Rising. I'm wondering if any of you are related to him. Any unison, they all say, no! I found the right family. You know, and I, I look in, and I see this guy lounging on the sofa, and I say, nice try. I've seen his picture. You look just like him. You're his brother, aren't you? Yeah, I'm his brother. I said, well, let me explain why I'm here. And I come in, and I'm explaining why I'm here. And he goes, okay, let me call him. So he calls him on the phone. And he goes, this reporter wants to talk to him. I don't want to talk to any reporter. And they're going back and forth. And finally, I just have him hand the phone over to me. And I said, okay, you know, hey, I just want to hear the story. You know, I promise it won't be more, more than 15 minutes. You know, uh, and he, go, and he goes, nah, I don't want to talk to any reporter. I said, Okay, guy, I'll tell you the truth. I, I saw on your record that you've been married. He goes, yeah. Okay. I, I drove all the way to Sioux City, Iowa, uh, from Springfield, Illinois. And if I don't come back with an interview, my wife is just going to kill me. She's going to just say, you wasted two days. You could have been with the family when you could have, and you instead drove out there and didn't even get an interview. And I said, I don't want to deal with that. Can you appreciate that? Okay, fine. Come on down to the construction site where I'm working. So I drive down to downtown um, Sioux City, and um, it's at this point it's about nine o'clock at night. It's pitch black, and uh, he's there troweling some concrete with some other guys. And he said, "Just wait till I'm done here." And he gets done. So we go out in the middle of this parking lot. It's just the two of us. And I said, "You know, tell me the story here." And he goes. Well, I really didn't want to testify against him. 
Okay, why? He goes, well, no snitch. Okay, well, what happened? He goes, well, it's like this. He said, the, um, they put me in the same cell with them for like a month, and then all of a sudden they pull me out of the cell, these detectives, and they, they take me in this room, and they throw down this picture of this burned child in front of me, and they said, if you don't testify that he um, confessed to you, we're going to charge you as accessory after the fact of murder. And he goes, I don't want to get charged as accessory after the fact of murder. So I just said, sure, I'll do it. I said, well, and he said, I told the truth, though. You know, and I'm like, well, that's an interesting story. So we got this all on tape, and we broadcast it. You can imagine it created quite a stir. And then when he got to, um, brought in for the, uh, for the next trial, I just wanted to get rid of that recorder. That's why I just told him that story. And yeah, well, come on, guy. You know. <laughs> and there was another woman. There was a there was a woman that was also a witness in the case. And I, she was a key witness in the case. Her name was Wanda Hughes. Her name still is Wanda Hughes, for that matter. And she had looked out the window of a house she was in, about two blocks from the from the um, fire she said, and she said that um, she saw taillights there, and she said she'd recognize those taillights anywhere. And I'm like, okay. And so um, it come, it come, she was the key witness, and she became the key witness in this case. Um, during the first two trials, they rolled in the back half of, the, of Stanley Liggins' car, which is just crazy. I've never seen yeah. half of a car in a courtroom no, ever. The insane. pictures, the pictures are insane. <laughs> yes, they are. I mean, they're really crazy. But the thing is, the, the uh, jury didn't know that it was a car. They had it shrouded like a statue, the whole thing. And this woman takes a stand, and Bill Davis, who's a fab, fabulous um, trial attorney, walks in walks up to this shrouded um, object and he says to the woman, tell me about this car you saw. And she starts to tell him. And he pulls the shroud from the, the, from the back end of the car and the jurors just gasp like, oh, there's a sh that's what it is. And then they turn the lights off in the courtroom and they turn the lights on, on the um, uh, taillights on on the car and she says, I'd recognize those taillights anywhere. Those were the taillights I saw. And, um, and, you know, so it's like, wow. So 30 years later, I go knocking on her door. And I said, and uh, she's telling me about it. And I'm sitting on the front porch. Her husband's mowing the yard. Her grandkids are running around. And there's a bee flying around her heads. And... Um, and I said to her, we're talking, and she's telling me in about you know, this, why she did what she said and how she saw it. And then uh, I said to her, now, i got to ask you, uh, had you ever had a relationship with anybody in the police department before um, all this? No, no, not at all. And I was questioning her a little bit more. And all of a sudden, she's ordering me off the porch and yelling at me. Proves the old adage about journalism majors uh, isn't true. You know, how do you get a journalism major to leave your front porch? Pay for the pizza, you know. And it's like, <laughs> so I love it. That's uh, you know, 
Um, so she kind of chases me off the porch, and I say, fine, and um, I come back like a year later and see if she's willing to talk, and she remembers me, and she's, you know, doesn't want to talk. Of course. And, um, but it turns out this woman had been a paid police informant in more than 80 other cases involving the same police uh, officers that worked this case. And he stopped and think, what are the odds that this woman who just happened to see this case also happened to, uh, you know, you don't know. Uh, so th- there's some real que- there were some real questions about those two particular witnesses. Now, yeah. the, uh, I, I'll be very honest with you, I think Stanley Liggins is guilty. Uh, I can say that, I think, fairly, having sat through the trials and gone through all the evidence and you know there's a lot of stuff that didn't come out in the trials that should have he had um, he was arrested or when he was a juvenile he got into trouble but not ever convicted um, involving a, the uh, sexual assault of an elderly woman with um, in Mississippi with um, dementia and she couldn't testify against him uh, he went to prison for an armed robbery for seven years. I knew that one. When he was in prison, um, uh, he was accused. Uh, he was a very violent individual. He, um, he bit correction officers and attacked them. He did uh, some other things. Um, he stabbed an um, unarmed man repeatedly. And was able to um, get acquitted by a jury on self-defense uh, for murder. I think I, I think I read that. Now he his claim was the that he, that the guy he, he disarmed the guy and then stabbed him. But even if you disarm the guy, he's still unarmed. But you know, uh, technicality, technicality, whatever you want to I mean, call it. Uh, but you know, he was accused um, uh, by one inmate of trying to rape him in the in the um, showers. He was. You know, just a lot of horrific things. And if you read his psych profile, he's a scary dude. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, I probably should have put this in. I mean, three days after uh, I was at the murder scene, um, they arrested him. And um, I wrote him a letter to the Rock Island County Jail asking for an interview. Simple request. (laughs) Yeah. And he calls the newsroom, and he says, I'll talk to a reporter, but I don't want to talk to a man reporter. I want to talk to a female reporter. And uh, uh, I said to the editor, you can't let somebody dictate, you know, what gender or, or what race or whatever of a reporter is. And she goes, okay, fine. You can go, Scott. But take... Um, Take a reporter, take a, take a woman with you just in case he won't talk to you. And uh, so uh, the reporter that goes with me is Jennifer DeWitt. She's still at the Times, an excellent reporter. And uh, I go in and we there's this sheet of plexiglass between us and I pick up the phone and I'm talking to him and Jennifer's sitting behind me and he's saying some kind of crude things about, you know, women and sexual things and I'm like... Oh, this is creepy, and um, uh, it was the most terrifying interview I've ever had. And I interviewed lots of criminals in my life. I interviewed people from all walks of life in 37 years. I've 
he is the only one that I can think of that really got under my skin. He just spooked the crap out of me. I mean, like two or three years later, I went to the movie theater and I saw this movie called Silence of the Lambs. Jodie Foster's interviewing Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. And I go, that's exactly what I felt yeah. with that plexiglass. I mean, it was exactly what I felt at the time. Yeah. He was really a spooky guy. In fact, after I got done with the interview, then um, a Channel 8 reporter came in a few hours later, uh, Chris Miner. Of course. And uh, interviewed, uh, interviewed him and um, uh, as well. And then the next day... Uh, Lisa Toronto with um, Channel 4 came in and interviewed him, and then, um, oh gosh, uh, a reporter with the Dispatch Argus went in, and um, his first name's Tom, and I think it's Tom Swike, um, who came in, and he um, interviewed him, and I was talking to Tom you know, 30 years later, and so what do you remember that interview? During the whole interview, and mind you, this is a guy trying to professing his innocence and trying to tell everybody that they got the wrong man. And he, Tom, goes in there right after um, the Channel Four reporter leaves, and he goes into graphic detail about what he wants to do to that Channel Four reporter. And I'm like, this guy is really creepy. The reason, and the, the other thing that didn't come out in the trials is that why did the police focus on him right away? Well, he was out on bond for sexually assaulting another 10-year-old girl a month before Jennifer's murder. Yeah. And so, of course, they're going to focus in on him because he was somebody who was, was out over that house every day. And, but that never came out. And he had a girlfriend. And he, who he lived with some of the time and uh, on and off. It came out that there was an allegation that he was um, sexually abusing her three-year-old girl. And so you've got all these allegations of sexual abuse surrounding this guy. But that never can get before the jury because it's considered overly prejudicial. And so am I skeptical about some of the testimony that was presented in the trial? Yes. Yeah. But... I know the things that weren't presented in the trial that um, that pu more than pushed me over the edge. That yeah, this, they got the right guy here. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, you know, he, he's a scary, scary man. And one of the creepiest things I saw was when I was sitting there, and the jury comes back, and uh, a few months ago, and they find him guilty, and he's just sitting there. Not a fleck of emotion, just stone cold, and I'm like, wow. I mean, it's just um, creepy. It's very creepy. Just creepy. I've never encountered a person like him in my entire life. Gosh, that's crazy, though. That you know, a jury wasn't able to hear any of that, and especially because. While it might have been circumstantial, you know, in some sense of the word, it shows a pattern. It shows a pattern of, you know, predatory, you know, tendencies. It shows a pattern of, you know... And that's what the prosecution argued, is that this is a pattern of behavior. And the other thing that was strange is, if you laid down the picture of this girl uh, from Milan that he sexually assaulted a month before Jennifer, 
and he laid it down Jennifer's picture next to him. They could be sisters. They looked just alike. And they were the same age. There was, uh, you know, there's, there's a pattern of behavior here is the argument. And, oh, when he went to trial for the other case, uh, the, the little girl testified against him. He's walking out of the courtroom in Rock Island, and he looks over at the girl's mother, and she said, he says, I'm going to kill that little girl when I get a chance. Jesus. Yeah, I mean, that was what she's testified to. And, you know, this is a scary, scary man. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'll be the first to tell you I'm liberal about some things. I think there's a lot of people in prison that shouldn't be. They should be in drug treatment. They should be in other programs. They should be in some kind of diversionary program or whatever. Somebody like Stanley Liggins should never get out of prison. Yeah. He's a scary, scary man. That's crazy, though. That really is. And, and for... Four juries, in a sense, you yeah. know, from, you know, what was his first one, 93? First trial, he was, the crime happened in 1990, the first trial was 1993. Yeah. Um, that jur- trial, that guilty verdict was overturned because it had come out that Stanley Liggins was providing uh, cocaine to... The mom. The mom to sell. Yeah. And um, they said... And the Iowa Supreme Court said, no, um, that's overly prejudicial, that the jurors will think less of him because he's a drug dealer. And they also said, never mind, that's how the family knew him. I mean, it was the nature of the relationship between them. And also the Iowa Supreme Court said, there have been so much media uh, coverage of this, it probably should have been a change of venue, which actually I could buy into, to be honest with you, because it was a media circus when this happened, and... Do that. So they moved the case. They had a new trial in Dubuque, and I don't know if you remember this or this was before your time. But it was 96, 97. It was 95, 96. I was three or four years old. Okay. Well, this is the <laughs> era when there was a bunch of cross burnings up in Dubuque. Okay. Um, Dubuque, as you probably know, is the most homogenous major city and one of the most homogenous states in the union. Yeah. It's very, very, very white. And uh, the mayor at Dubuque had said, we need to bring more diversity to this community. Maybe we should recruit families to come in uh, of color to give the community a little bit more of a texture. Mm-hmm. And uh, that didn't go over very well with um, some people there. And there started a handful of black families that were already in the community and lived there many years. They started burning crosses in front of their homes. It was really scary. And then in the middle of this mess, they they moved the Stanley Liggins trial to Dubuque. And, of course, Jennifer, the victim, was white. Stanley Liggins is black. It's got huge racial overtones. And he gets he draws an all-white jury, which was not surprising in Dubuque. And Stanley Liggins stands up and starts uh, hollering at the jury and swearing and, uh, uh, at the jury. And it's gone down and... Uh, Among local attorneys, he's the only man. Can I use this terminology? Of course. He's the only person to motherfucker a jury in the. Uh... <laughs> oh my god, that's crazy. <laughs> and ironically, um, it went to the jury, and they wait. They they took several days to uh, find a guilty verdict, and um, so. 
he goes back to prison, he's got all these appeals, and then it comes out that the key, one of the key witnesses against him had been a paid police informant mm-hmm. that was never disclosed. And that's a, that's a pretty big deal. And then it comes out that there were some police reports that were never turned over. Now, Bill Davis insists that they were turned over. He says they got lost when they moved from one uh, defense attorney to another, but the Iowa Supreme Court, or Iowa Appellate Court at the time, said ruled otherwise. So those two things, he gets a new trial. And uh, they decided to do a change of venue to Waterloo, uh, and which is the most racially diverse community in Iowa. It's a, by Iowa standards, it's racially diverse. It's 10% African American, which, you know, you know. And they had a couple African Americans on the jury, and um, but the jury deadlocked uh, going through it, and they voted nine to three for acquittal. And um, so they decided to go back to trial again, and um, the jury pretty quickly uh, came back with a conviction. And um, it was a, it was a. Um, it was a long time. It was a long time, 30 years. I mean, this case is going. I never have covered a trial or something that came back after 30 years. Can you imagine most of the witnesses were dead? Yeah. You had, I mean, you, the people you're bringing, I mean, I felt really old because I'm sitting there, and you know, I had been a really young reporter at the time, and I remember these really rough and tough detectives who wouldn't put up with crap from anybody and they're coming in in walkers and I'm like oh god I'm just ancient I mean (laughs) I mean it's like you know it it was you know it was incredible yeah have you stayed in touch with with Jennifer's family throughout this time oh yeah uh, yeah I um I've interviewed um her mother many times um I you know it's and I, you know, I, she has a brother that's in prison in uh, Fort Madison um, right now. I've, I've interviewed him on the phone. Um, her biological father lives up in the Twin Cities. Uh, he never came down for the funeral. He um, wouldn't talk for the thing, um, for the for the podcast. Um, you know, yeah, stay in touch and. Uh, because the way that you've explained before is is that while you never knew Jennifer, mm-hmm. you definitely have... I have a real sense for who she is. Yeah. And, you know, and the... the um, uh, Jennifer's godmother, Mary Rockwell, and I have gotten to know each other very well. And Jennifer, he, she, Mary was really a rock in that child's life. And um, she's told me a lot about her, you know, this tomboy who was loved to scrap with it, with uh, everybody. She loved to ride her bike. She loved her dog Bowser. She um, knew all the kids in the neighborhood, was all over at everybody's house. Um, she was a very vivacious, very um, engaging child. Um, you know, you know, I've, I've interviewed her teachers. Uh, I've interviewed a lot of people. They all have stories to tell. One of them, one of, one of the uh, teachers' aides, was telling about 
taking a class over to, to the Adler to see a play and holding Jennifer's hand and Jennifer bitter arm because she didn't like her holding her hand. I mean, you know, just, yep. there, there are just a lot of stories to go. I mean, and talking to this teacher's aide 30 years later, she's like crying during the interview remembering Jennifer. Um, I, you know, I, it's just, it's just a tragic story. I mean, it just sticks with me. Uh, what a horrible waste. Yeah. You know, Jennifer, if she was alive today, would be in her 40s. She'd probably be a mom. She, you know, she'd have a life. A life. Yeah. And, you know. I think, that, I think that's the hardest thing when you try to piece together some of these cases with children. So not only Jennifer Lewis, but you look at Trudy Appleby, you look at Amber Sutton. Mm -hmm. You know, they're young, young kids. Yeah, and, and I was... You know, I was here when all both of both of those cases happened too. I mean, just to just to imagine them being 30, 40, 50 years old, I mean, that's just it's hard to think of that because we only know them as these kids because that's when mm -hmm. their life stopped, unfortunately. Yeah. You know, I was I was talking to somebody um the other day, and he was saying he's going to a um, retirement party for a Davenport police officer, and he told me who it was. I go, wow, he's the only one left on the force from when I covered it. Really? I mean, that's how much of a turnover there's been. That's how long it's been. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's been a long time, but you know, um, you know, I still like to interview Stanley Liggins. I still like to go into the prison and. Um, interview him uh, uh, he hasn't agreed to it I'll, I'll keep being persistent because I'd like to he hear his explanation I mean uh, there's a lot of questions out there that um, yeah. need to be answered yeah and of course I mean he might talk he might he did talk to me before yeah I mean Although, he, he's done it once <laughs> oh I do have a funny story about that oh no I love it. Because you're, you're an executive producer, so you, you know what newsrooms are like, and you know how harried these places are. <laughs> and so I go in, and I, I interview Sandy Liggins, and then, uh, of course, I get talk to detectives who work the case, who, who rebut what he has to say. Of course. And I think it's a pretty good story, and we, um, we run it on the front page of the Quad City Times, and... Like two or three weeks later, my, a good friend of mine comes over to me and she says, oh, are you all, all worried? Worried about what? Well, Stanley Liggins called here and made threats against you. What? Well, she talked to that editor over there. So I walk over and I said, did Stanley Liggins call and threaten, threaten me? Oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you. It, it happened like three weeks ago. And I, I, and I go, well, what did he say? Let me think, let me think. He said he hated that story, and as soon as he got out of prison, he was going to kick your ass. And I go, thank you for sharing that with me so promptly, you know. <laughs> not, not now you're just like, uh, is he out? Like, you're scared? Like, I would be. It was just kind of like, you know, a guy that's in prison for, or, or in jail, awaiting trial for this. Probably one of the most horrible crimes ever to hit the Quad Cities, and he calls and threatens a Pacific reporter, and you forget to tell him. I mean, come on. <laughs> that's that's miraculous. 
that is that is one of those where you know the running joke about being in journalism. You know, we're in the business of communication, but we can't communicate worth no, nothing. We can't. <laughs> That's for sure. That's for sure. It's like like oh gosh. So yeah. And and with suspect convictions, because I mean, I I you know I listened to it and I watched you know I I read over a lot of the things that you know were written about it and everything and you know you know and I and I'm doing the same thing. I feel like you know I don't want to glorify what's going on. I don't no. want I don't want to do you know I don't want to shed light on and on these criminals. That's not the goal. It's obviously to be able to give a voice. To avoid, you know, to the voiceless, to those who were victims, to those to remind people that these happened. You know, the Quad Cities, you know, yeah, we have shots fired calls and yeah, we have, you know, car thefts. You know, we have these, in a sense, petty crimes nowadays. But, you know, there has been some awful, awful shit that has gone down here. And, it has. And to remind people of that, but then also to remind people that, you know, these victims need to have their voices heard still. These stories shouldn't go away. They should not go away at all. And they, these people, these kids need to be remembered. Yeah. And, you know, I, you know, I, uh, it'll touch my life, you know, to the day I die. I mean, it's something that changed me. And uh, I know that sounds dramatic, but it really did change me. I mean, uh, and I don't know anybody who was there that night that didn't get changed. I mean, Dennis Kern, he was a the lieutenant in charge of the identification division for Davenport at the time, and he was there that night. And I'm talking to him. He's, he's now with the, um, the Iowa. He's a criminalist now with the Iowa Department of Criminal Investigation. And I was interviewing him, and he goes, "You know, I was testifying in a trial, uh, and I had a flashback during the trial." He said, "I never." I said, I never, you know, he said, you know, I heard about Vietnam veterans having flashbacks, but he said, I always kind of uh, blew it off as much of hooey, and then he goes, and I'm in trial, and they're, they're, they're um, cross-examining me, and he said, suddenly I just have this flashback, and I'm back at the scene, you know, because, you know, he was standing, maybe it's with his face, maybe a foot from the, um, from the body, examining it, you know, God. for evidence, and he was, he was changed by that event. I was talking to Don Schaefer, um, went on to become a Davenport police chief and he was in charge of the scene that night. You know, and he was telling me. It changed him. I mean, he just he can never get out of his his mind the look of those eyes looking back up at him. I talked to Kevin Murphy, who's since since passed away in the last year or so. He can't he could never get past what he saw that night. Yeah. I mean, it haunted him for the rest of the rest of his life. Everybody I know that was there was affected. Um, it was, you know, it was the, the worst thing I've ever seen. I hope I ever do see. So now that Stanley Liggins is locked away, uh-huh. now that it's been 30 years, you've obviously now covered with suspect convictions the case. Mm-hmm. Are you still planning on writing the book? Yes. You're still in the process of that? Yeah, I got to do a few more interviews. Uh, I have volumes of uh, material, and I just started to start writing. And as you can appreciate, even though I write a lot and I've been doing it for 30 years, it's a little intimidating starting a book. Yeah. But I'm, I'm excited about it. I think it's got a lot of potential. Uh, there's some stories that need to be told. I mean, one of the questions I think we have to ask ourselves is, what environment creates a Stanley Wiggins, mm-hmm. you know, 
what you know what was his home life like what was it like um, how did prison affect him uh, how did different things that happened in his life leading up to this and you look at lives like Jennifer Lewis you know looking at how can we prevent this sort of thing from happening I mean long before there was a Stanley Liggins involved in her life there was um, uh, Iowa Department of Children and Family Services was um, was involved in, in checking out her home life there was questions they had there was other I mean it, this wasn't like coming out of nowhere there yeah. was there was issues there's things that we need to really look at um, but I would really I'm excited about doing the book uh, wondering where am I going to find the time which shocks me because I was thought I had oodles of time um, but I do a lot of other things and of course you know, I'm working on a new podcast too uh, I'm looking at um, a school shooting that happened in Santa Fe Texas yeah ten children were killed uh, eight children were killed and two teachers were killed and 13 more people were wounded and um, I'm trying to look at the nature of um, why these mass shootings happen it's going to be a new, new podcast coming out this um, uh, this fall so we're looking forward to that I haven't come up with a name for it, for it yet but we're working hard on it that's incredible though I mean your career for the past 30 years is just something that you know I think any journalist would want to emulate no matter how painful that it obviously has been with especially Jennifer Lewis but to be able to have these stories and have these interviews and to be able to do the things that you're doing even now I just think it's just incredible and so truly truly thank you for sitting down with me thank you for talking with me thank you for driving up from Springfield <laughs> and being able to have this conversation because I feel like you know there there's you know there's facts Mm -hmm. that have been obviously out in the trial, you know, beforehand, you know, with the times and mm -hmm. our and our systems back here, you know, where we can, you know, lay out the facts and that. But, you know, mm -hmm. it's it's the journalist stories. You know, a lot of people, you know, they want to claim fake news. They want to claim, you know, that, you know, journalism is dead. But I feel like to continue to do these stories is even more important nowadays. Journalism is just changing. Yeah. And we know a little bit about how it's changing. We don't know what's changing to it yet, but we know it's going to be there. We know it's going to, but it's going to be it's evolving into something else. It'll be fascinating and exciting to see what it evolves into. Yeah, and so I think to continue to tell Jennifer's story, but to continue to tell everything is is of exactly. the utmost importance. So thank you again for everything with this. Well, I love being here. Thank you. Thank Take you. Care.